Well, good morning. This is odd. This is truly, truly strange. MVC family, I miss you. I love the people that are here, but it is so much more exciting to have everybody in this place worshiping God. And yet we know that God is with us. We know that God is with you at home. If you are watching for the very first time, if you've maybe never been to MVC, welcome. You may have seen our worship team up here this morning wearing shirts that say, we are and on the back family. And we really believe that. That is a part of who we are as a church. And we hope that as you're joining us this morning, that you would feel like you are a part of this family. We are so excited about the work that God is doing, but we recognize that we are in the midst of challenging times. The times that we find ourselves in today are unprecedented. We are in uncharted waters. And as we walk through this time, it's important to recognize that, to acknowledge that and be okay with that, but to recognize that God is with us in the midst of these trials. We are going through Revelation, as Pastor Pete has mentioned, and it's an odd book to be going through at this time, especially today as we're looking at Revelation 14, this chapter that talks about the reaping, this great harvest. And I will tell you that as I have prepared over the course of this last week, I felt like this is perhaps the most important sermon that I've ever preached um, because of the timely nature of this, because of the fact that this, this passage specifically speaks to the importance of persevering to the end. In the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of obstacles, we are called to persevere. And so I am so excited to dive into this. We have been looking at, at the middle of Revelation here for the last couple of weeks, looking at chapters 12 and 13, which are really significant passages. They look at persecution of believers. And now as we move into chapter 14, we read about John's vision about what happens to those who remain faithful to God and those that do not. It really is a, an issue of reward and, and punishment on some uh, level, and we find these to be common themes in our society today. We recognize that these are two things that we have to deal with. I've mentioned this before in our own family. We talk about the idea of making wise choices. Wise choices are important, and so my wife, Monica, and I, we talk to our kids about the importance of making wise choices. We don't often use the word punishment, but we talk about consequences. We talk about the fact that depending on what you do, there are going to be results that come as a response to that. There's a cause and effect relationship between what we do and the outcomes that we experience, the outcomes being those consequences. And when you make wise choices in our house, oftentimes you might get to watch a movie or do something fun. When your choices aren't so wise, you might lose your Legos or your music or something else like that. I will tell you that at one point in time, I took a light bulb out of the ceiling light fixture of one of our kids' rooms because the light was not being turned off. Truly shock and awe. It was fantastic. But I will tell you that the lesson was learned. But this, this outcome that we experience as a result of our choices, the decisions that we make, is something that we need to consider. And it's important before we dive into this text to remember, though, that in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we are reminded that we are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. So while our works are important, that is not what saves us. And we need to be aware of that. However, we do know that our works matter. The things that we do matter. And in James 2, we're reminded that faith without works is dead. They testify to the condition of our hearts and the faith that we profess. And we see numerous examples throughout Scripture that speak to the importance of bearing good fruit. Those who are faithful, those who have allegiance to Christ, should bear fruit. And the fruit that we bear is not inconsequential. 
in chapters 12 and 13 of John's vision, we see that there will be temptation, that there will be those that try and lead followers of Christ astray. There will be persecution that may cause people to want to, want to abandon their faith. But in chapter 14, we see that those who do persevere will experience a beautiful, beautiful rest in Christ. So I invite you now to read with me from Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. After having seen the two beasts in chapter 13, John sees Mount Zion and this Lamb and 144,000 people. As Pastor Pete has pointed out, there's a great deal of symbolism in the book of Revelation, and it's important that we recognize that even here. Zion is a name used in the Old Testament for the true city of God. It refers to the city God will rule over at the end of the ages. And we see this word Zion used 155 times in the Old Testament. It's used frequently. It's interesting to note, though, that only 19 times is the, the word Mount Zion, those two words together used 19 times, but nine of those specifically speak to a remnant being left behind, a remnant that is connected to God by his name or rule. And we see this connection again here in Revelation. Zion is a place of refuge for those that follow the Messiah. In the New Testament, we see Zion as the heavenly city to seek after or pursue, so to speak. And Hebrews 12, 22 points to Mount Zion as being the heavenly city. Jerusalem. What is clear is that Mount Zion is a holy location. It is an important location. Zion is where God sat enthroned in Israel's temple. And here we see that the lamb that represents Christ standing with 144,000 people, all with his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is symbolic of God's presence with these believers. The lamb stands in contrast to the second beast that we saw in chapter 13, it's this, this beast that masquerades as a lamb but speaks as a dragon, marking its followers with the mark of the beast. But here we see the lamb enthroned in the Father's place, marking these people with the name of Christ and his Father. This isn't one of those temporary tattoos that you get out of the vending machine. Kids always see those and want to put the quarter in or you put it in, you get the little egg and the temporary tattoo. This is not that. When I think of this imagery, I think of a branding iron. A branding iron that a shepherd or a cowboy might use to mark their flock or their herd. It is this indelible mark. It is this permanent impression upon someone to identify to whom each belongs. It speaks to God's power and protection in the life of the believer. And we certainly know that there is power in the name of Jesus. This number of people is a specific number, but once again, this is a symbolic number. 
the 144,000 represents the completeness of God's people. As Pastor Pete has mentioned previously, when we covered chapter 7, this isn't specifically ethnic Jews, but rather a number representing the totality of those who will come to faith over the course of history. It's thought that this number possibly is, is comprised of the 12 tribes as well as the 12 disciples. You multiply those together and then multiplied by a thousand. In chapter 22, we'll see that these two groups, the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples, represent this structure of the heavenly city of God, so to speak. Here we find these thousands of people before the Lamb, marked with his name and the name of his Father. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're being led in worship. This is worship in response to victory. This type of worship we see in Revelation 5, we'll see again in Revelation 15. We see this particular event even prophesied about in Isaiah 35.10. This praise is in response to victory over sin. This praise is in response to victory over the beast, which we'll soon see. In the Old Testament, the phrase, a new song, was in reference to giving praise to God in response to victory. And so here, the redeemed are at Mount Zion, a place of refuge, and they are praising God, and they are offering up a response to the victory that God has won for them by singing a song that is new and fresh. And I think it's important to realize that this probably was not half-hearted worship. They're not whispering, they are roaring. They're not concerned about how they sound or what those next to them are thinking about how they sound they are singing a new song of praise to God because he has won the battle. Because they have been redeemed, because they have been delivered from their enemy. It's because they have been redeemed that they can participate in this praise. And in verse 4, we see that these people are, are pure, they are undefiled. Now, I know that some of you might be watching at home with your kids, so we're not going to get into a whole lot of detail here about the example given in the text but once again, we see this sin being representative of something, of impurity. The text speaks to the 144,000, which represent those true followers of Christ and their purity in remaining faithful as the bride of Christ. Now, we know that blamelessness doesn't come from perfection. It's not because we are perfect, but it comes through God's forgiveness. It is through Christ and his blood that we are made pure. But we see this imagery of purity and the pure follow after Christ, and they are the first fruits of God and the Lamb. First fruits are the beginning of a harvest. They were offered up as offerings to God. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that, God, that Jesus calls his disciples. He calls them to follow after him. And the call that he extends to them is not a temporary call. It's not something for the short term, but it is a long-term call that requires perseverance. It requires a lifetime of professing the truth of Christ. We see that those who have been called and continue to follow after Christ will be the first fruits. This speaks to the idea of a harvest, which we'll see later in this chapter. I don't know if you've ever planted seeds before. Perhaps you've worked on a farm or you're just a backyard gardener, but there is something truly exciting about seeing your plants grow and produce fruit. I love working outside, and I go around my yard on almost a daily basis looking at what's coming up and what's growing. My family and I have affectionately called our plants that I go out and check on my plant babies. And uh, we go out to check on them because it's exciting to see what is happening, to see the growth, to see the development that is taking place. 
Harvests are exciting times. It's something to look forward to. And that's what this harvest will be for believers. John's vision then continues with messages from three angels. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. John's vision consists of angels proclaiming a warning of God's impending judgment. I think typically when we read scripture and we see these encounters with God, we like those times where it is tidings of good news and great joy. We feel good about that. We like it when the angels reassure the shepherds that they have nothing to fear. But this angelic vision is an entirely different type of visitation. This is a decree to those unbelieving in all parts of the world. This is notification to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue that God's judgment is at hand. God's justice is the emphasis of this proclamation. This angel is not dismissing God's grace, but rather calling attention to what will happen if God's grace is ignored. The first angel gives a directive to fear God and give him glory. And there are differing views here on whether or not the worship that results from this is actually as a result of conversion or takes place uh, prior to conversion. We see examples in the Old and New Testament of believers and unbelievers giving glory to God. But what we do know is that all will recognize God for who he is and glory will be given to him. In Philippians 2.10, it says that, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. The second angel returns to this theme of purity that we see at the beginning when we're talking about the thousands specifically referencing Babylon and its ungodly, immoral, and idolatrous activities. We'll read more about Babylon in chapter 16, but right here the angel speaks to these sinful practices. And this is symbolic of the sinful and idolatrous activity that will lead those who do not repent to the eternal consequences that separate them from God at the judgment. And then the third angel speaks more clearly to what this separation will be like. Verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is intense. This is tough stuff. The angel says that if anyone worships the beast, if they follow the beast and conduct themselves in a way that is contrary to the ways of God, they are marked with a mark of the beast. They will drink the wine of God's wrath. That does not sound like a tasty drink. This is not some watered-down punishment, but God's wrath is poured out full strength 
into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. That would be a terrible day, let alone a terrible eternity. In verse 8, we see that many have become drunk on Babylon's wine, this wine of passion. But here, the consequence in verse 10 is to drink the wine of God's wrath, a drink far more potent, a drink far more intoxicating than the wine of Babylon that leads to this idolatrous pursuit. The wine of God's wrath will bring nations into submission, and they will experience unimaginable torment as they come to realize the hopelessness of their situation separated from God. And this won't be a temporary condition, but one that will persist into eternity for those that follow and are marked by the beast. But here's the good part. Here is the good news. Verse 12. This is the keystone of this passage. Verse 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Followers in Christ are called to persevere. Perseverance is not easy. If you have ever trained for something, a marathon, a long bike ride, If you've ever been on a strict diet, you know that perseverance is tough. I personally have a problem with school. The problem is that I keep going back. I love school and I miss school. But I get to a part where I'm partway through a class or a program. I'm like, why have I made such a poor life choice? I want to be done. I want to give up. But at the end of that, I realize, I look back and I realize what an incredible experience it has been. And that the perseverance has been well worth it. And then a few years later, I start the process all over again. Christians are called to persevere even in the midst of trials, persecution, and anything else that might come their way. They are called to remain steadfast in their faith and allegiance to Christ. To follow God and to live out their faith. The beautiful promise is that those who endure the trials of this life while remaining faithful to Christ will experience great rest in the life to come. The idea of truly divine rest sounds far more appealing than the pain and agony and hopelessness found by following the beast. The consequences of the choices made by those that follow Christ and those that follow the beast are radically different. These two groups of people have very different fates. In verse 14, we begin to see the separation between these two groups of followers, the separation between those that follow Christ and those that do not. John envisions a harvest. Verses 14 through 16, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. John begins by looking and beholding one, the one who will be doing the reaping, the one who will be doing 
the separating. John beholds the one who's about to bring judgment. Seated on a white cloud is one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is an allusion to Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before. The Son of Man is also the sower in Matthew 13.37, but now he comes to reap. He comes wearing a crown symbolizing his kingship, and he comes bearing a sickle representing his role as judge. John then sees another angel, and this angel calls to the Son of Man and tells him that the time to reap has come because the harvest is fully ripe. And the one like the Son of Man swings his sickle across the earth, reaping a harvest as if reaping a field of grain. Verses 17 through 20, we see that another angel comes. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The two angels in 17 and 18 prepare for the second reaping. However, this time it's grapes, and the grapes after the reaping are thrown into this great winepress of God's wrath, and blood flows from the winepress outside the city walls. Now, these two accounts of these reapings are sometimes viewed as being the same. They're sometimes, be, sometimes viewed as being different. But what we see from the very beginning of this chapter is that there's a vast chasm between those who claim allegiance to Christ and those who follow the ways of the beast. We know that intermingled is good seed and weeds, but at the judgment, the two will be separated. Only the good seed, those claimed by Christ who persevere through the trials and tribulations of life will experience the true rest in Christ, while those that claim allegiance to anyone or anything else other than Christ will experience painfully, hopeless separation from him. The first fruits will be claimed and the rest will be thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. As I've been pre- preparing for this message, I have been listening to an album by Sean McDonald called Ripen. The theme of this album is this harvest. The song I've had on repeat is, I want to be ready. And the first two lines of this song are, I want to be ready when the Son Almighty comes to lay claim to him and him alone. It's a beautiful, beautiful line. And the question that has to be asked is, Are you ready? Are you ready to persevere in faith through the trials of this life? Are you willing to follow him? Are you rooted deeply in Christ? Is your faith manifesting itself through ripe spiritual fruit? The reality is that in trying times like the ones we are facing today locally in our community and in our nation and in our world, our faith is tested. And yet, we are also provided with incredible soil into which to sow seeds of faith 
and truth and hope and love into the lives of others. It's in times like this when we must press more closely into the source of our hope. Times like this when we need to turn to Scripture and the good news of Jesus Christ. Times like this when we need to be reminded that God has staked a claim on all those who believe and follow after him. And when the time comes for this great harvest, it will be utter joy to stand alongside dear brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been made blameless through his blood, to sing songs like the roar of many waters and the loud thunder, a new song of praise about the goodness of our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you that you have incredible rest ahead for those that persevere and follow after you. Lord God, we pray today that we would be people who would bear good fruit, that we would be people that would persevere through the trials and tribulations, through the persecution that is found in this life so that we can rest eternally with you. And Lord, I pray today that we would proclaim your goodness to those around, around us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave people to stand alone, that we would come alongside to encourage and speak truth and hope. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this family of faith. We thank you that there are brothers and sisters all around this community and perhaps around the world hearing your good news. Lord, I pray that we would truly be your family, that we would be a place that welcomes people in to experience you in a personal way. We thank you for your love, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.